Welcome to the Planning Exchange Podcast. A huge shout out to all of our followers so far and all of those who've assisted us in getting us to this point. For those of you who found us through iTunes, we encourage you to drop by our website, www.planningexchange.org, to check out other resources and a schedule of upcoming podcasts. The Planning Exchange will be re releasing podcasts generally on a monthly basis on a range of urban subjects. We want our information to be relevant to both our local and international listeners and hope to serve as a knowledge portal around the world for other urban professionals, including urban planners, architects, urban designers, landscape architects, economists, academics and students, hopefully amongst many others. This is our second podcast today and follows the success of our inaugural podcast a month or so ago, where we were talking to Chris Avery from Deep End Consulting on the changing retail market around the world. Today we're lucky enough to be joined by Melbourne Urban Design Royalty, Tim Biles from Message Consultants. Message is a town planning and urban design consultancy working in Collingwood, Victoria. Tim has over 40 years experience in the town planning and urban design industry in Melbourne and is sought after urban design expert in Victoria. Today we've asked Tim to talk more generally about his views on the planning and design industry with a broader theme around courage and enlightenment. So Tim, can you provide our listeners with a brief summary of how you got to now? Well Peter, um, it's quite interesting that I'm working in Collingwood because in 1968 I got brought over from South Australia to do a little uh, urban geography tour of Melbourne and we were asked to walk up and down Smith Street, Collingwood and record what was happening on the first floor of all the buildings in Smith Street and I thought after a day of doing that, this is actually quite interesting. I quite like this. I think I want to be a town planner. So I uh, did a planning course postgraduate, worked in local government, lectured at RMIT. In fact, if I seem to, if I remember, you were one of my students, Peter. Not that long ago, Jim. <laughs> and um, then went to work in consulting, which I've been doing for, I think, the best part of 30 years. So that's how I got to now. So Tim, just our first question today is based around this theme of courage. Do you think yeah. that planners need courage? Well, I think everybody needs courage in life, Jess. Um, and we, we uh, you know, we traditionally see courage probably conjures up for most people pictures of uh, war heroes or athletes or acts of bravery. But um, do you think planners are within that? Definitely. <laughs> every day, every day, I think we all have to. Uh, face our fears in various ways and different people uh, face those fears in different ways. Um, my own experience is that, as you know, regularly I have to go before panels or VCAT and to tell you the truth, most of those days I walk down or drive down to the hearing and I have to face my fears. And usually you come away at the end of the day or the end of the week and you think, why were you worried about that? Mm -hmm. So um, yes, I think in planning we need courage. We have a we have a we have an industry where um, our job is to manage change and uh, change. We have to make judgments about that change. It can be change that we see for the better. It can be change that we would uh, want to perhaps recalibrate uh, into a different direction, or it may be change that we think should be resisted because we don't think it's for the best for our cities. So uh, in exercising those judgments in a framework where it's often adversarial uh, can be difficult for people. Um, perhaps I could just 
uh, give you a, a little example. Um, if there's, a, there's a very interesting book written by a woman called Susan Cain called Quiet. And in that book, she tells us that about one third of the population are in fact introverts. And introverts have to face fear that extroverts don't face. And we, we live in a community, often we see it in planning, where we see the people who do the talking and the people who make the noise get the attention. And the people who sit quietly and have something to offer but have to face the fear of speaking publicly or in other forums about it don't get any airtime. They don't get their case um, uh, articulated. Introverts have contributed marvellous things to the world. Susan Cain would say, if we didn't have introverts, we wouldn't have a theory of gravity. We wouldn't have a theory of relativity. We wouldn't have Peter Pan. We wouldn't have Google. We wouldn't have Harry Potter. And uh, it's in that context that I think we need to realise that we have a diverse population working within our industry. So we have people with different needs and we have a diverse population that we're in at intending to cater for. And you may well have been to meetings. I've been to meetings where... <coughs> excuse me... Um, you can sit there and people will uh, occupy, of the hours conference, two or three individuals might well occupy 90% uh, of that conversation. And there'll be somebody sitting in the corner that hasn't said anything through the whole of the meeting. But they will make an observation at the end of it that is the clincher, that redefines things, and you think they were so quiet and yet they made this marvellous contribution. They probably had to use a lot of courage to make that offering, but it was a valuable offering. Um, shall I keep going? Sure. Um, so, uh, if, uh, if you... Um, I think one of the things that we need to remember is that, as I say, different people have different fears and they need courage to be exercised or, or they need courage for them to exercise their, their intellect. Um, there's a marvellous little quote by Margie Kuhn, Maggie Kuhn, I'm sorry, who says, she's a social act, American social activist, and she says, speak your mind even if your voice shakes. And you probably, we've all think I've been in that situations where you think, I've got to say this, I've got to stand up and say this and you articulate it and uh, all you're doing is perspiring and you know your voice is not resonating uh, very effectively. Um, but a lot of it, Tim, <clears throat> presumably is about job security. People are scared to speak out on different yeah, things, whether yeah. they're consultants or working for different levels of government. I yeah. mean, there is that fear of you know, possible retribution if you do make that contribution or speaking I, out of turn. I think you're absolutely right, Peter. And, and uh, if, if, if we are going to manage change effectively, we do need to hear from alternative voices. And I think it's, it's disappointing, for example, that uh, senior public servants increasingly are fettered in their ability to comment on mm. policy options. Um, uh, council officers are, are criticised uh, um, often mercilessly um, when they make recommendations or they're 
the constituency doesn't like what they want to hear. Um, if you are in a tribunal hearing, it can be a very scary place. Do you think it also has something to do with um, the level of expertise or the range of expertise that planners now require over a broad range of fields that prevents people from speaking up and having the courage to speak up because they don't feel perhaps qualified enough to make those calls or those comments? Um, there is, I think that there, there's uh, certainly that. I mean, we do have to deal with complexity that ranges from aspects of the law through to traffic engineering, subdivision, landscape architecture, architecture. So it, it does become, um, it can become quite daunting. And in order to deal with that, we see policy becoming um, siloed into frameworks where you basically tick the box. And uh, uh, we ask for a report from the acoustic engineer and a report from the landscape architect and we go, tick, that's all been done. And I think out of that, it's very easy to uh, reach a position where once all the boxes are ticked, you think, okay, that's, that's, that's a pass. Um, but is it really? And does that process fetter our ability to say, well, maybe the boxes, the boxes I'm ticking, are asking the wrong questions mm. here? Am I, am I really coming to grips with what matters? Mm. And it I takes... suppose that makes it very easy for people to just defer back to those professionals and just say, well, I'm not qualified to, yeah. to know or have the knowledge about that topic. Let's ask the traffic engineer or the acoustic consultant. I've done it myself, Jess. Yeah, haven't we all? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Tim, what, what gives you pleasure in a planning sense? I think, well, it can be at several levels. Um, one of the things that would give me pleasure is the little exercise that you wrote about in Planning News, I think, about 15 years ago, people, uh, Peter, as, as Red Jacket, where you described a situation where a couple were trying to rebuild, I think, a small house in a heritage precinct and they put their lovely plans in and suddenly found the entire neighbourhood were hunting them as if they were um, terrorists. Mm. And you had to take them through a long process and finally you got them a permit. And I think that, uh, that, that you know, we see injustices like that and we see communities actually ganging up on individuals that uh, um, it needs, that's where an alternative voice is needed. The, thing, the, the, things, the things that give me most pleasure is you know, I did town planning because I thought I wanted to make urban environments and other environments better places. And uh, I look back on work that was done in the 1970s by my then employer, Western Port Regional Planning Authority on the southern Mornington Peninsula, where um, a conservation plan was produced in, in, time, in, in great controversy. Um, supported by the Hamer government and by the First Minister of Planning, Alan Hunt. And um, to their great credit, they, they stood by it. And the peninsula is now, I think, still a very good place as a consequence of that work. I only had a bit part in it, but it was, uh, it was uh, something to look back on and get, get pleasure from. <clears throat> 
So, so Tim, planners, uh, amenity police, protectors against self-interest or tools of the modernist movement to create scientific <laughs> order, uh, or all of the above and perhaps other things. Your thoughts? I think, I think we're, we're all of those things, Peter, and uh, there, are, there are times when um, you, know, you, you play a role in all of those, uh, all of those categories. Um, what I would hope is that at the forefront of people's minds is, look, we're here to try and make things better. We're here, not, like, not like the tax office, I'm here to help you, but we're here to try and make these things better and we're here to face the challenges of what is essentially a, a growing population, a diversifying population. And uh, as, a, as, the, the, as, a, as I keep saying, it takes courage to accept and facilitate diversity, which in the end is the best thing we can have for Australia. Does planning promote too much of a white bread approach to to solution design solutions? I mean, we talk about diversity. Is yeah. it is it genuine or, or is it just more white bread? Well, I think I think uh, there's the, the, the clear challenge that we have at the moment. All the changes to the residential zones have been, in my view, largely about protecting white bread, or if you like perhaps wholemeal bread. And if we seriously want uh, to accommodate diversity, if you want your children to have somewhere good to live, if you want your grandparents and you as uh, uh, grandparents to live in perhaps a different way, um, we need more than white bread or wholemeal. We need, we need to encourage diversity. So. Um, if you were going to ask me the question, if you were Minister for the day, what would you do? Uh, one of the things I would immediately do as, a, as Minister in the new government is to repeal all the uh, uh, residential zones and to start again and to give a challenge particularly to the middle and outer ring suburbs, but particularly the middle ring suburbs, to redefine themselves for the next 50 to 100 years and to accommodate um, the needs of a community that we don't yet have and who are disenfranchised. And the only people who represent our children, young children in bassinets at the moment, are people like us. Um, and we have to do that in the face of quite entrenched um, views about, about, about the future, you know. So how do we do that? Do you think it's, um, is it an artistic approach or is it a scientific approach to planning? Uh, I think most of it is an artistic approach, mm -hmm. Jess. I think uh, there, there is an art to, um, there is an art to in trying to inspire people about the issues that they need to face. Most Australians are, by and large, early adapters to technology, mm -hmm. early adapters to challenges, generous by spirit. And yet often it's the, the articulation of the antithesis of those things that gets the track, the political traction. Again, I think because political, the two major political parties live in fear. They live in fear of the consequences of making decisions that might fail and the press punish them mercilessly if they fail. And so they want the evidence to back it up. 
they want the evidence to back yeah. it up and to back uh, up all of their decisions. Yeah, and if you think you you know think about your own life, uh, short though it is, <laughs> um, if you make a mistake, you learn from it, mm. and you become better at it next time. And had my fair share of mistakes, Tim. Have you? Yeah, I've had a few myself, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, <clears throat> Tim, just moving into a bit of an esoteric area, what are the mysteries and the unknowns in planning? What would you say they are? I think, I think that um, the, the un, it, in a way, you don't know what the unknowns are. In a way, it's about having the courage to step off into those unknowns. I think it was Rumsfeld who said, you know, there are known unknowns and unknown knowns. Or mm. I haven't got the quote quite right, but mm. um, there's a beautiful little uh, the, there's a beautiful little quote here that uh, I got from uh, reading my uh, iPad this afternoon when I was looking at issues of courage, and there's a beautiful little quote here from Lord Chesterfield who said. Man cannot discover new oceans unless he has the courage to lose sight of the shore. And I don't know if you're a sailor, but I can tell you if you're an ocean sailor, when you lose sight of the shore, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment of uh, exhilaration on the one hand, and on the other hand you think, I hope I can find my way <laughs> to the other side. And so what about um, mistakes of the past that planners have made? You were just speaking about the new residential zones in Victoria. Do you think that we're smarter than previous generations of planners or are we making the same mistakes? Uh, I think we've become a lot more sophisticated. In, in Melbourne, when I, you know, I did my course in the early 70s, and you could get a job as a town planner without even being qualified. The fact that you enrolled at university, and that's the, that was the demand. So you can imagine people in their 20s really working in local authorities and in the metropolitan authority, um, thinking they knew everything. I'm sure they made, uh, you know, they made errors of judgment. Um, and we, and, and in this era, we now have, you know, we're really going into almost the third generation of planners in this state and in this country. Um, it's far more sophisticated, much broader. Um, but I do, I think we have, we've lost our ability to inspire. And just to give you an example of that, when Board of Works of the Metropolitan Authority in the 70s, the city was expanding. Um, particularly east and southeast, the board set about creating metropolitan parks along the Yarra River and at the time it was controversial but how we are blessed that they took that initiative and that, that took courage to do that and, and it took um, more than courage, it took um, what's the word I'm searching for? Creativity, you had, you had to be prepared to have a go. Mm. Um, so the question might be, what are we doing now? That uh, what are we doing about Melbourne that we think are really is really challenging? It seems to me so much of the debate is about infrastructure mm -hmm. and about public transport and roads and the tension between those things. When 
in many senses, it would be better, I think, if the debate, if that, that there, in a way, there doesn't, shouldn't be too much debate about that. We don't know we need those things. What we do, what, what I think is more important is what are we going to do about the opportunities in uh, municipalities like Moreland and Darabin, where um, they have high levels of accessibility, they have um, uh, lots of brownfield sites, and I look at the uh, architecture of recent development along some of those arteries, and I think this is pretty ordinary. Mm. And, and in truth, I've given evidence in support of some of those things, so uh, I won't ha hang my head in shame, but I'd certainly <laughs> not be taking out there as an example of something that I think is meritorious. Mm. And speaking of generations, Tim, is there a particular boomer approach to planning and is it relevant to young planners? And, and, and can, can the young find their own, own way forward? Well, the, the, it's a good question, Peter. The, the, first, the first thing is that the boomer approach is to repeatedly play Creedence Clearwater Revival on a very large stereo at a barbecue in your backyard. And after you've got over that um, and you've drunk plenty of cask wine, um, you play a bit of hair and wear your flares. No, I'm joking. Um, well, people, people are critical, critical of the boomer generation. You know, they, they, I hear John Fain on the radio occasionally and, and he says that we were profligate, indulgent, uh, didn't do things well. And then I look at the eulogies that came out for Gough Whitlam, who was in government for three years, and both sides of politics were praising him for the contribution that he made to Australia. And I think Gough was, he wasn't really a baby boomer because I think he was born in the, in the 30s, but he, was, he got there in large part because the boomers supported him and endorsed what he wanted to do. So if we metaphorically buried the boomers, would the eulogy for the boomers be similar to the eulogy that was given for Gough Whitlam, or would it be a eulogy for somebody else who we don't like? I won't mention any names. Well, putting aside St Gough and things like that, the world the boomers faced yes. or grew up in is very different to the world we have now, which is... Yes. Uh, and the boomers are in control of the planning. You think? Well, you look at all the positions of power. Yes, they occupy all those positions. So, is is their worldview different to the worldview of those coming up? Probably it is. Probably it is. I, I, and and I, you, you know, that's a that's a good thing. Um, that's a good thing. You need you do need generational change. Although I think the boomers, the thing that I would that that, that does happen, and which I'm sure every dying generation observes and that is that knowledge gets lost and I see I see uh, things that we learnt uh, in the you know, 60s and 70s and developed being lost and being reinvented uh, in a way that's perhaps not as, as good. So going back to some of those uh, themes around Goff and, um, and courage. Yes. And experimentation, I yeah. suppose, which yeah. Gough was famous for. Yes. How do we promote experimentation in planning? Give people 
the basis on which they can exercise their courage, their innate courage. And uh, that means not always listening to the extroverts, but also listening to the introverts and giving the introverts um, a canvas or a forum in which they can make their contributions. Um, um, I think coming, but coming back to that theme about experimentation, um, we've spoken a little bit about um, localism and the importance of localism in a, in a community. What are yeah. your thoughts on local community groups and what they can do? The, well, the, the often local interest groups are formed in the face of something that they fear. It's, it's often something that they is going to change their world or they don't like the look of. Um, and so the position starts from a negative. I have worked on projects where councils have wanted to bring about quite substantial change that if you were asked in a forum as a planner, if I said to you, Jess, what do you, how do you think these people are going to react? You'd say, they're going to object. <laughs> they're going to give us, you know, they're going to give us a really hard time here. But I have seen uh, in Moreland through a program there where over a period of about 18 months and through a variety of techniques, of dialogue, of getting people to face the dilemma, the dilemma of change that they needed to transact, be actually become almost a partnership. So you, you can, I think, um, there are means for for achieving that, and even in the even in our uh, homewheel bred suburbs, which are being nicely packaged in cellophane, um, you can you could actually sit down with people who might be a strong objector in a hearing, and say, "Would you like a glass of wine?" and let's just talk about this. Mm -hmm. And you say to them, "Where are your children going to live?" and they will they will fess up to the to the to the conundrum. So it's about a bit of technique I think, Jess. Definitely. Mm. Uh, Tim, the concept of the planning commons, so that general space that we all sort of rely on and it's common common area and there's that sort of exchange of ideas. Yes. How do you how can that planning commons be enhanced? Well, Peter, in all honesty, I think what you're doing in this little uh, blog is one way in which it can be enhanced. Um, if I may be so bold as to say that our two professional organisations, I think, foster good camaraderie and uh, there's a sort of collegiate attitude within those organisations that uh, uh, always makes it easy to go to any of their functions. There are times when I wish that they were had a bit more courage and a bit less camaraderie <laughs> and a bit more articulation of alternative views that are outside the norm. But uh, we live in the age of uh, connectivity and uh, you're offering one way in which those alternative views can be found. enlightenment and the ideas of progress. Do you yeah. subscribe to the view that planning evolves in a steady linear path or are there cycles punctuated by disruptive movements? Definitely cycles of disruptive movement. Goes back to the baby boomers, Jess. Mm. What we need is a bit more good music, 
More cask wine. <laughs> what, what, thanks, Tim, for that. Uh, this isn't a music show, but anyway. What, what, Tim, are those... How are these disruptive moments? Uh, are they times of crisis? Are they... What? Are they technological change? Uh, world events influence? Mm. You know, spatial systems? What are these disruptive moments? Well, I think the, the, a re good recession is always a disruptive moment, Peter, and we saw that uh, in Victoria with the Kennett government being installed and um, Rob McClellan was uh, Minister for Planning. A lot of people were critical of Rob and, uh, like, if you make any decisions in life, there'll be some decisions that you might make that won't be so good, but I thought that his uh, stewardship of that ministry in that time was actually very good and he brought about change to the planning system that was really needed. Um, he was a great defender of uh, the program of revisiting or reinventing medium density housing and he picked up all the work that had been done by Brian Howe and others before him. So that was, uh, I thought that was a, an interesting moment. There are other times when uh, people you know, we, we see buildings or we see um, parts of our urban environment that get reinvented and we think that is really something. And if I look back at all the criticism that went on about Federation Square and you know, every, every, every moment that that was being built it was, too, built, it was too costly, it was taking too long, it was going to be too elaborate, it was, wasn't really architecture. Um, it's one of the most celebrated spaces in metro in, in the city centre now. Do you think it was a good result? Um, I still like the parks of London, Jess, which are pretty simple: lawns, plane trees, mm -hmm. deck chairs, squirrels, squirrel, mm? cask wine, cask wine. Well, no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> brown ale. <laughs> just, just point back, Tim, to that, that topic of suburbia. It, it's yes. where the great bulk of people live. Yes. Most planning energy is devoted to the hipper parts. Yes. I mean, the moorland, uh, you know, those sort of places you talk about. Yes. Suburbia is where most people live. It's yes. where most infrastructure exists. Yeah. How do we reinvent the post-war suburb in two minutes? In two minutes? In some respects, I'm not sure that that I think there is, will always be a role for the suburb, however that might evolve. If you've got children, you you want to live in a house and you want to be close to a park, and you have an entirely different attitude to your accommodation raising children, to the attitude you'll have as a young single first job or an empty nester bearing down <laughs> towards retirement. Um, so there is, there will always be a role for for the suburb. Um, if you if you look at you know Hugh Stretton, talk about the baby boomers. Hugh Stretton's ideas for Australian cities. He was singularly um, supportive of the creativity that went on in suburbs that we don't that is not so so obvious. The, the the issue I think really is for the middle suburbs. It's for the suburbs that were built after the war, where those generations are now. Um, want to want to move on for various reasons and those middle ring suburbs are now 
about to, the, the, their choice is to continue to function like an outer suburb or be more like what's happening in the inner suburbs and the opportunity is for them is because they are connected. They're connected to the city, they're connected to activity, they're connected to diversity. So do you think there's enough time and energy devoted to the suburbs in no. terms of creating a good place? No. 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 And we've, we've, I think, Jess, that we've, uh, you know, again, uh, municipalities produce par children's parks that are basically boring. It's well, they're very safe, aren't they? They're safe. They're safe. A little too safe. Yeah, perhaps. they're fantastic. They're so safe. But do you think safety is, is that the thing that's going to drive your child's creativity? Do we need to graze a few more knees? Yeah. Uh, Tim, Copenhagen is nice. Yes. Uh, but but to do planners and designers need need different templates that are perhaps more achievable given our car based way of life, predominant car based most yes. of the most so, of the population. It's always the example given, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Copenhagen. Copenhagen. Yes, I've been to you've been to Copenhagen. No, not I've been to Copenhagen. It was a lovely city. Mm. I prefer New York. And uh, Tim, last last thoughts. Uh, you wanted to talk about refugees. I did want to talk about refugees, Peter. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, now, I know that uh, you're uh, Scott Morrison's love child. Yeah. And um, so, fortunately, I've got the microphone, so you can't intercede on this conversation. Well, you can. You can turn off the computer. No, no Tim, my, my privilege is the editing. Oh, your privilege, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, I'll remember that. Um, well, we had... we. As a precursor to this, we had a very interesting conversation where I said the thing that disappoints me about our asylum seeker policy is we're not using our imagination. I grew up in Woomera, which was uh, in the middle of the desert, it was a defence installation, became a detention centre, much to my chagrin, um, and now where once it housed 5,000 people, it now houses about 150. It's got a swimming pool, Olympic swimming pool, a beautiful theatre, a hospital, a school, cemetery, uh, it's got a sewage treatment plant where all the water is treated and then recycled through the town so all the trees can be, public trees can be watered. And it's the perfect place for refugees who've come from a desert community who know how to use scarce resources. And I look at my <coughs> cleaner who comes in here every weekend and cleans my office and he says to me, Tim, my, can you help me? My aunt has been displaced by the troubles in the Middle East and she wants to get to Australia. How can I get her to Australia? She's been to see the UN and they've given her an appointment so that she can make her, her application to come to Australia. That appointment is in 2021. And you think, this is crazy. I could put those people up there, instead of spending $5,000 million a year keeping them away, I think as planners, we could actually accept that challenge and do something with those people in that community. And I think they would contribute to it. I go down to uh, Victoria Street. You might even take me down there after this for a little bit of Vietnamese food, Peter. And um, I talk to my friend who's an economist and say to him, what do you think this street contributes to the economy of uh, Abbotsford and Richmond? Um, and he sits there with his pen and he calculates it out by floor space and suddenly we've got some figure that's in the millions and millions of dollars, Peter. Mm -hmm. 
And I think if I went into, if I was the town planning consultant for Dimboola, for example, I might go up there and say, um, you've got a declining population, uh, declining economy. What do you think you could do? And I might bump into a couple of farmers in the Dumbulla pub. You might know this hotel. I do know this area well, 10 years. Yes, and um, who, who uh, might say to me, oh, well, Peter, Tim, we tried to buy some chickens once so we could start some broiler farms up here, but we couldn't get the chickens. So we're sitting here having a couple of cascades. Oh, no, they wouldn't drink cascade up there, would they? Melbourne bitter. Melbourne bitter. So they were having a couple of Melbourne bitters in the dusty, you know, glow of the evening. And um, they said, well, the place is full of ducks. Why don't we start a duck farm? So they did. Love a duck. And uh, they've made a success of it, I hear. They have, Tim, and they now... <clears throat> now 180 Korean people are working in Nil. What, what nationality? Korean. 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 Between uh, Thai, Refugees. Thai and Burma. Refugees, Pete. Exactly. They, Refugees. Uh, yes. Are they making a contribution up there? Wonderful contribution, Tim. <laughs> So thought-provoking, I can't believe that. Thought-provoking comments, Tim. Fits really well with the dialogue and ideas exchange we're hoping to promote. I think the ideas about um, ideas and comments about courage are very interesting and something I think we can all keep in mind in our day-to-day -day work as urban professionals. Tim, you certainly proved your role as a planning royal. We've really appreciated your input today. Thank you to all of you who've tuned into today's podcast. I hope you've taken away as much as I have from Tim's discussion. Just a reminder to our listeners to also check out our website, www.planningexchange.org, where you'll find further information on all of our guests, along with more information about Planning Exchange itself and our vision. Over and out. Good stuff.